Hey everybody, welcome to another Sermon Extra. It's JC here. And uh, this is Sermon Extra is coming after we looked Sunday morning at 1 Kings chapter 1, starting a new series in the life of Solomon. And looking at his ascent to the throne, his coronation, how he was chosen and declared by David to be the next king, even though his older brother Adonijah was seeking the throne. And we looked at how there's a comparison there to be made between um, God's chosen ruler versus man's self-exalting will to rule. And we compared that to in our own hearts. Very often we set ourselves and want to set ourselves on the throne of our hearts to do what we want, to pursue the life we think is best for us, regardless of what the will of God is. And so like Adonijah, we sometimes want to will ourselves to power, to exalt ourselves, to think we know best what will be good for us. But the problem is that that always leads to death, and so we need Christ to rule our hearts, his law to direct our lives, his kingdom to be our primary pursuit, and um, that be where we put our loyalty. I just want to talk a little bit more today about the nature of um, kings that vie for the throne of our hearts, uh, which is the way we talked about it, but really the concept we were discussing was the concept of idolatry. I wanted to stay away from those words just to help us get an idea of it with different language. But this idea of other kings wanting to rule on the throne of our hearts is the idea of idols. It's looking to things as ultimate and seeking to find fulfillment in ways God hasn't ordained. And we looked at in Genesis 3 how the temptation for Adam and Eve was to be like God, to eat of the fruit, to know good and evil. And Satan tempted them saying, take this and be like God. And so they took it of themselves and um, they did receive this greater knowledge, but it brought about death. And I want to just bring up something about these trees in the garden that I think are often misunderstood. The trees in the garden are often thought of as being sort of magical trees that, you know, you take a bite of the tree of life and boom, you get um, eternal life power as it were, and you touch and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and boom, something in a sense magical happens, and it changes. Many theologians will talk about how these trees are not magical, but they're sacramental. They're representative. They, they didn't have powers in and of themselves, but they represented things. Uh, they represented obedience to God in the tree of life, and um, they represented actually an Hold up there. Okay, I'm stopping that thought halfway. Consider the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Knowing good and evil is not a bad thing. And having that sort of wisdom, like God has, which Satan said, is not wrong in and of itself. And this might be slightly speculative, but many of the best theologians agree that God's plan in the garden was not to forever keep Adam and Eve from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil but that, that they were to grow in maturity and progress in the task God had given them until the time when they would actually have the maturity to be able to handle that sort of knowledge. They would, in a sense, graduate. And so that tree was to represent um, almost like a threat against them in order to keep them walking in obedience to God ways, learning what he would have them learn. And that if they passed this probationary period of testing to see whether they would fully follow God, eventually they would actually inherit true eternal life in heaven 
as it were. And so the eating of the tree is not that the tree itself was something bad, but it represented something good, but reserved to be gotten in God's way in God's time. And so the problem with Adam and Eve wasn't even that they wanted to be like God, is that they exalted themselves to take of this fruit and to seek after this good in their own way, on their own terms, apart from everything God had directed. And I think what's helpful here is that this teaches us a little bit about the nature of idolatry in general. Idolatry is very often seeking something that is in and of itself good, but seeking it in the wrong means, seeking it through the wrong substances and sources, and apart from God's design. So consider even something like sexuality. A good thing designed by God to be reserved for marriage in a particular context, a particular relationship. And people that would um, idolize this desire the pleasure of sexuality so much that they are willing to take it on their own terms apart from God's design. Or even just the good thing of being loved, seeking love. When people say seek that in a spouse and idolize their spouse such that they seek perfect and total love from a mere human, it leads to disappointment. True loving identity is to be found in God. Or even um, people that seek fulfillment in their career. Um, that fulfillment on the inside is not a wrong thing to seek, that meaningful life, but it's sought in a finite resource, in a mere job, in money or success or achievements and attainments. The sort of fulfillment that can only come in God. And so like Adam and Eve grasping out to take of the tree, we so often find ourselves grasping for things that might have a good um, idea behind them, but we take them on our own terms and for our own ends and our own uses. And so the problem with idolatry is that it seeks things that only God can truly give in the creature instead of the creator. Total joy is sought in finite things when the true source of joy must be eternal. It must be found in God. And the problem is here is that like we said, kings promise peace and prosperity. These idols promise things. The promise is that if you just make enough money, you will feel like you have this identity, like you've arrived. But it never comes. The promise that if you can just have enough adventures and experiences in life, you'll feel like your life has mattered. Um, there's something in psychology called hedonic adaptation, which just refers to the fact that nothing's ever is good in repeated experiences. Um, we know this with things like even uh, drug use. You need increasingly higher doses to get the same high. Um, visiting the same vacation spot um, is never quite as good as the time previous. Uh, we get used to things, and that's why people end up running around that hamster wheel of life. Um, it's never enough money. It's never enough pleasure. It's never enough success. Whatever it is, because um, infinite love, joy, and peace can only be found in our infinite God. And so idolatry is turning good things into ultimate things. And the problem is that these things that promise us usually end up oppressing us. Those seeking um, the joy of pleasure of food end up being oppressed by that very desire. It ends up hurting them. Those, those seeking to be um, fully fulfilled in human relationships and will pursue that at any cost, they end up being almost enslaved by that pursuit. 
Same can be said for all idolatries. So just a reminder to us to not seek to find anywhere else what can only be found in God. And that's what happened in God's good world that was made to be enjoyed under God in the fall. Um, the creature got exchanged for the creator and the good things of earth that God gave us to be enjoyed, food and sex and friendship and, um, per, and taking dominion, um, creating, cultivating, these things became ultimate things in which mankind began to seek his happiness and fulfillment instead of finding it in God. So idolatry. I want to talk also a little bit more about kingship. Uh, we talked about how the office of the king is fulfilled in Jesus. The office of a king is one of Christ's three offices. He is a prophet who speaks God's word to us, a priest who pays our debts, and a king who rules us. And just an interesting side thing is when you compare um, the way David speaks of Christ versus how Solomon speaks of Christ, together they make a really cool pairing. If you think of David was a man of war vanquishing Israel's enemies, Solomon was a man of peace. And so in a sense, David's reign prefigures Christ as the lion, conquering his enemies, defeating death, defeating the grave, um, putting all the enemies, um, all sins to death, and fulfilling, in a sense, that kingly role. And then Solomon, the reign of peace, is Christ as the lamb, caring for his people, gently leading them as a shepherd. We can see that um, David-Solomon contrast in Christ from the time of the cross, but we could also think of it as Christ now is ruling like a David, progressively reigning till his enemies have been made a footstool, and at the end of days, he will finally judge all false rulers and authorities and unbelievers. And then will come the final so Solomonic reign, where there's the final eternal reign of peace, and so, in a sense, Solomon's kingdom can also prefigure the kingdom of heaven, the final glory that we inherit with Christ. Anyways, um, this idea of Christ as king is really important. And when we think of Christ's offices, in Western Christianity especially, there has been a heavy emphasis for the last many centuries on Christ as priest. And our concept of salvation and the Christian life is almost entirely thought of in priestly categories. That is, the gospel we all know, that Christ paid the debt for sins. We are sinners. When we believe in Christ, our sins are forgiven. His righteousness is imputed to us. And we, are, we can be forgiven for all time when we trust in Christ. We're, in a sense, um, acquitted before the judge, justified. And that is true and wonderful. But that is one um, dimension through which we can look at Christ's saving work. We can also look at Christ's work through the idea of kingship. And Christ also accomplishes salvation as a king. And this perspective complements and comes alongside the priestly perspective. And we would do well to incorporate it into a more holistic, full-orbed idea of salvation. Because as the king, Christ, um, he destroys the principalities and powers. He disarms them and he delivers his people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light to rule and guide them by his law, by his word and his spirit. And so I just jotted down a couple comparisons 
for taking the perspective of Christ as priest versus Christ as king. So, as priest, Christ covers sin. As king, Christ disarms idols. He cuts down rulers and authorities. As priest, Christ pays our debts. As king, Christ pays our ransom. As priest, Christ procures our forgiveness. As king, Christ procures our freedom. As priest, Christ requires confession. As king, Christ requires our allegiance. If we think of Israel and Egypt, as priest, Christ would represent the Passover lamb, covering over his people as the angel of death went forth to punish. But as king, Christ represents the, the parting waters that brings the people safely through and then punishes their enemies. As priest, Christ forgives sinners. As king, Christ comforts sufferers. And we often forget that there is this also this component of Christ's kingdom. You see, when Christ was even ministering on earth, he wasn't just spending time with sinners and tax collectors offering them forgiveness, telling them to go and sin no more, though he did. He also came to liberate the captives, to set the oppressed free, to heal those in bondage to Satan. See, Christ doesn't just come and heal this world of its problem with sin. He comes and brings comfort in the suffering. It's even significant to consider the timing of Christ's death and resurrection. Christ's death and resurrection happened on the feast of the Passover, which above all celebrates Israel's deliverance from Egypt. That is, the salvation pictured in the Passover is that of being freed from oppression and slavery and tyranny and being brought into a new freedom. Whereas the more um, classically priestly feast for Israel was the Day of Atonement. That was where they had the scapegoat, where the sins of Israel were, were placed upon the goat and that goat was killed and another goat sent away to give life. That one more closely prefigures and pictures Christ's priestly work of atonement, which is, of course, still at work in Passover. But the primary image is deliverance. And when we forget looking at salvation through Christ's kingly perspective, we miss a significant part of it. That, as Colossians 2 says, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities. He triumphed over them in the cross. And he doesn't just forgive us for sin, but frees us from slavery to vain idols, and he frees us from serving and living for these things that can never truly satisfy us. He frees us from the slavery to our own lusts. He frees us from that hamster wheel of needing to find happiness in things that will never truly satisfy. And he frees us and liberates us to now live as free people. And you notice in the Exodus, God first delivers and then gives them the law. The law doesn't free them, but they are delivered for the law to live as kingdom citizens in a new kingdom culture. And the beauty of Christ's kingdom is that it can infiltrate every political structure on earth. And we can live as citizens of God's kingdom, like people in exile, as it were. We're ambassadors for Christ, even while we live in the nations that we're in. We are to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, living by the commands of Jesus, under his government, 
in his church as part of his people, children of light. And so we can also look at faith. An aspect of faith is this aspect of allegiance. And in the idea of covenant, when we covenant with God, what a covenant involves is a covenant loyalty. When you marry someone, part of the covenant is that you will be faithful to them. You will stay true to them, fight for their good and joy. And part of our Christian duty is to give our allegiance to Jesus. And that's what baptism pictures. Um, in baptism, there's an obligation to serve Christ. There's, this, there's an identification of this person with one who will be a servant of Christ in his kingdom. And every time we come together to worship, especially on the Lord's Day, we are in a sense renewing our allegiance reminding ourselves that Christ is our great king and he has delivered us to live in his way, to be his disciples, to learn from him, to be a part of his counterculture, his um, alternate society. And again, this allegiance is pictured in the Lord's Supper where we are reminded of what Christ did for us. And by eating and drinking, we are once again renewing our covenant vows, as it were, saying to Christ, I receive of your body. I receive of your blood. I receive your forgiveness. I trust your work and I will live in accordance with this. I will endeavor to a new obedience to you every day. So let's praise the Lord Jesus for how he's delivered us from um, unfulfilling and oppressive ways of life and freed us to live, even empowered us with the Holy Spirit to live lives of obedient kingdom service. So let's seek to live upright and joyously in God's kingdom, seeking his kingdom first and his righteousness, looking to his word to learn from Jesus what it looks like to live lives of service as servants in his kingdom.